Welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So the next sequel that we're going to be reviewing is Batman Forever. It's our second Batman film and another Batman film with a star-studded cast. You got Tommy Lee Jones, Val Kilmer, Nicole Kidman, Jim Carrey, and even a little uh, John Favreau uh, cameo in there. We'll discuss it all. Don't worry. We're going to talk bad butts, bad nipples, and everything else. But first, man, this week's interview was just so much fun. I've talked to a lot of people, I guess, in special effects, but not a lot of the people that made that transition from the practical to the computer effects. So talking to Eddie Yang was so much fun. Eddie, over his Christmas break in high school, was working on Predator, painting some of the suit. I'm sure other odds and ends. I just saw a very amazing photo online of him painting the actual Predator suit, which is so awesome. But it was way before that, you know, from Famous Monsters Magazine. He saw how you could build everything, making his own little makeup kit with his mom's makeup and using a tackle box. And American Werewolf in London was like so ingrained when he saw that movie. It changed him. It changed him into knowing this is what he wants to do. Flash forward, you know, 10, 15 years later, he's working for and with Rick Baker at Rick Baker's studio on so many epic projects for many years. So I thought that was so cool. But his origin story about how he went out and made his dream happen is such an inspiration. So when you hear that, if there's anything that you've been thinking about doing or been wanting to do, do it because good things can happen. The worst thing that can happen is somebody says no. In Eddie's case, a no just meant I'm going to try one more time. And you're going to love that story and just so much more. Eddie was awesome. So anything we talk about during the interview, I'll put into the episode notes. Like his studio, we talk about it a little bit. Um, it's called Deity Creative. I'll put that website and his Instagram links, all that good stuff. And also follow us on all social media at sequels only and subscribe, review, rate, share anything you can, because the more ears that get us, the more, more of these stories, these amazing stories about how people get started can get out there. So without further ado, visual effects, concept artists, practical effects, makeup effects. He does it all. Mr. Eddie Yang. Well, what I like to do with these is find out, you know, how they started, how they got to where they, where they got in the industry, because it's not a industry that has a very high success rate. So where did you grow up, Eddie? Um, I was lucky enough to be born in Los Angeles, California, right? The heart of- No way. So right in the thick of it. Yeah. Yeah. And and that, that does make quite a difference because um, a lot of the coworkers and people that I've met that do the same thing that I do had to immigrate from other states, cities at a very young age. And that means, you know, they had to be relatively old, 1820s or something like that to be able to be old enough to actually move to another city, uh, work for their idols and um, make a living, get, get their own apartments and so on. So I count myself super lucky compared to those people because I was already here and um, all the places and people that I wanted to work for and, and visit were literally within 30 minutes. So, Wow. Did you have any connections? Do you have any family like that um, worked in the industry? 
God, I wish. I mean, I, I like dreamed <laughs> of that. And I thought it'd be so much easier to get into the industry. I mean, I was at a very small school and there was like two people that visited. Uh, it was a grade school. I was like in third grade, fourth grade. No, actually maybe sixth grade or seventh grade. But the, the one guy that I knew, his name was um, John Eads and his dad was name was Hank Eads and he worked as a makeup artist. And I'm like, Oh my God, your dad's a makeup artist. Does he know Rick Baker? Does he know Dick Smith? Does he wow. know all that stuff? And he was aware of them. He said, yeah, I'll, I'll have my dad talk to you. If you want to call him, say, like, Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, cause I was at a crossroads at that point in time, but that was the closest to knowing somebody that was in the industry. And then, and then this guy that named Mark Marshall came to our grade school and he had, he was like the personal assistant. I found out later to like Spielberg and Lucas or something. And he had pictures of himself with R2D2. And I was just like, Oh my God, you're my idol. And so those were the only two people that I kind of knew. So, well, those are the right ones based on, you know, where you ended up. Did you, did, at what age did you fall in love with movies? Were you always into like monsters and like the makeup aspect? Yes, I didn't even really comprehend movies. I mean, I knew I, I knew Star Wars, obviously, and I was like, "Oh my god, yeah. this is awesome!" But every <laughs> other movie, I pretty much watched it for the effects only. I just, I just wow. watched the effects sequence, and when I got into it, I was still actually pretty scared of gore and slasher movies and all that stuff. And like, for instance, when I saw American Werewolf in London. I covered yeah. my eyes. My dad took me. I covered my eyes through all the scary stuff. But when the werewolf transformation came, I was just like, oh, my God, this is so cool. This is what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, same with The Thing, uh, Rob Oteen's effects, John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, super scared of the gory stuff. That, that was actually the movie that turned me where I was like, oh, you know, I can watch this stuff. It's okay. And, and it was like artistic. So – yeah, but. that's what's crazy. When people love horror or they love those effects, some people are like, oh, man, you like that? It's so gross. I always, at a young age, was so obsessed with how they made that look yes. like it was real. Like it was, like you said, it's art, exactly what it is. It's art and it's technical. I mean, Tom Savini's kind of associated with all the Spider oh, movies yeah. and stuff and Friday the 13th and all, and all this like the Prowler, you know. And he wrote a book called Grand Illusions in which, you know, me and every other probably child dissected it. And it was more like yeah. tricks and how he hid the blood tubes and cut away knives and, you know, the the animatronics he built for Creepshow and stuff like that. And, of course, that lured me in and I loved it. And then Rick Baker and Botine were doing these things that were more character-based and like makeups and like huge big blockbuster films at the time and stuff. I was like, whoa, what? You know, this was this essentially the VFX CG department before it was there was computers, right? So, yeah, I mean, it was literally all those things that got me like, whoa, what's going on? So I never really paid attention to the director, the story, yeah. or the setting, or all that stuff. I strictly watched the effects and I was just like, how did they do this? And what, what's going yeah. on? So, well, it's good know. that you did. So what was your first, like how old were you when you saw American werewolf in London and you're covering your eyes? Is that uh, elementary school? Like 11 or something. I think, 
if wow. I'm wrong, it's 81. I was in, born in 69, so, you know, roughly deck. Yeah, so right there, 11, 12. I think it was 81. Yeah. So, it, but, but to tell you the truth, I mean, I saw Rick recently. I mean, we're really good friends. We just went out to lunch recently. I could tell, like, looking at your IMDb, like, you worked with him over so many different, like, eras of, of his later part of his career, too, which is awesome. Yeah, which is so cool because I, like, dreamed about meeting him. I would have, like, dreams about meeting him in a restaurant. Like, he was my idol. He's absolute idol. And my friends at school were like, oh, I wish, I, you know, Magic Johnson's my idol or, or Joe <laughs> Montana or whoever. <laughs> Sorry, it's my computer. My computer is my lighting system here. So. It's okay. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I dreamed of meeting Rick Baker and getting to work for – for him for so many years and now being like friends with him that he's retired is, is so incredible. Um, I, I just, I'm so thankful for that. That's, a, that's so cool. But we actually chatted about this uh, two couple days ago when I went up to lunch with him. Incredible melting man. That was the first horror movie I ever saw. Wow. And my, I was seven years old and my cousin who was an immigrant from Taiwan didn't know he thought it was a comedy you know he didn't take no he was taking me to a borderline nc-17 horror movie because of all the gore yeah and i was freaked out it was like the melting man tore a guy's head off it was the first time i saw decapitation he like ripped a chunk out of a nurse's face and he was melting like realistically like with bone structure and everything not not comedic at all yeah, that traumatized me for decades. I was telling you, I've told Rick this like three or four times. And he never remembers each time, but because he has like 3D scans of the original Melting Man heads. And I was just like, oh my God. No way. That, that killed my entire childhood. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your first step? Like, obviously, when you were watching those movies, that's what you were paying attention to. When did you think like, hey, this is something I want to do? I remember distinctly it was famous monsters magazine and my neighbor had it. And it there was an article on Lon Chaney uh, and it had his makeup kit and they were floating out all these faces. And it was like man of a thousand faces. What is this? And I was so immediately got obsessed with, I guess, I guess I have an obsessive personality or something because I ran home Asked my dad if he had a box that looked like a tackle box or something. And then <laughs> I stole makeup from my mom's. I could have this kind of, and start putting in the tackle box so I could have a makeup kit just like Lon Chaney. And I don't know what it was. I mean, at that age, I was maybe six or, you know, seven or something. Wow. I was just like, what? So that, that sparked it. And then a, a, a kid at school gave me a book um, called Movie Monsters by Alan Ormsby and had these incredible drawings in them. And it, it, at the end, it showed kids how to make themselves into movie monsters. There was a paper mache bag for Frankenstein for the flat head. <laughs> there awesome. was a vam- vampire Dracula. You could draw a widow's peak with your mom's eyeliner. And it told you what you could use. You could ask your parents for it. Warts, you know, you use um, the... Um, eyelash adhesive duo and you put it on a paper on a plate and you could peel it off later and stick it onto your your face <laughs> i mean like real techniques it was so cool it was like having youtube back in 
eight or something. <laughs> so I did every single thing that was in that book. And yeah, that's, those are the, the, the two impetuses that kind of started me on this journey. So. Wow. So when did you, was it like in high school that you tried to like move your way into actually like being on a movie set? Yeah, it was like, um, yeah, roughly I was like 13 years old, 14 years old. My parents, we had just moved and then we had a, like a three car garage. That was an amazing, luxurious thing to have. <laughs> Cause the one garage, I mean, when I saw that one garage, I'm like, we only have two cars. Hey, can I, can I have that as my studio space? And my, my, my parents were primarily against me becoming an effects artist. They wanted me to become a doctor. <laughs> Like everybody yeah. else in the family, right? And they were like, "Yeah, sure, you know, you can go ahead. You can take take over the garage." So that that became my studio, and and I made that. I, I did all my masks, all this stuff in in that little uh, space. So and that was probably right before high school. And then I was lucky enough to meet a couple of pros. So. My friend Simon, Simon Loins, of this day I'll never forget because he, we were bored, summer vacation, looking through the phone book. If people don't know what that is, that was pre-internet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we looked up Makeup Effects Studios names, Don Post Studio, right? Don Post made these incredible, thick, cool latex masks that I tried to collect. My parents wouldn't let me have a bunch for whatever whatever reason i had like one or two but i knew the whole collection right and i wanted them but uh he was in north hollywood and i asked my dad you know where is this and stuff he's on his way to work so he was cool enough because i couldn't drive to drop me and simon off at dom post studios <laughs> on summer vacation and so simon and i went in and we talked to don post jr and he said kid go to medical school don't do this crap. You know, you're, you're going to regret it. And so he's so depressing. And then I was so depressed, you know, I was like, Hey, I know another makeup effects studio. <laughs> so I looked, I looked in the phone book. They had phone books, you know, at a public phone thing. And I'm like, makeup yeah. effects studios right around the corner. So we could walk there. So Simon, and I walked over to makeup effect, makeup effects lab, uh, which at the time was uh, Alapone and uh, Doug White, I believe that uh, ran it. And my friend Simon literally pushed me through the door. Like I was a little shy to go in. He pushed me and made a noise. Alapone was there. He looked up and he said, "Hell, oh, hi, you know, can I help you? And, you know, I introduced myself. I said, I, I've been reading about all this stuff through books and Tom Savini and, and Lee Bagan books and Corson books. And I, I want to be a FX artist. I, I, I learned, I learned about foam latex. I never even touched foam latex. And he goes, Oh, let me introduce you to Howard Berger. Later, became Howard Berger of KMB, right? Uh, Academy Award winner. Yeah. Howard Berger. And uh, he said, "Hey, Howard, will you show this kid around?" You know, and Howard's like, "Yeah, sure." He was just re getting ready to leave for Day of the Dead um, for wow. months in Pittsburgh, and he took me through makeup effects labs. Like, this is this, this is this, and I said, "Oh, is that a foam latex appliance?" And Howard said, "Yeah, it sure is." You know, can I touch it? I've never felt it before. And it's like it's so soft. I only read about it and never mixed it myself. Howard was amazing. He was so open about all everything. And he said, I'm leaving for Pittsburgh, but hey, if you go around the corner, literally around the corner, 
was John Beekler's makeup uh, makeup lab, and my buddy. Oh uh, wow! Bob Kurtzman's working there, so go you know talk to him, and so so I did, of course. <laughs> and Howard took off for Day of the Dead, and I didn't know at the time Howard, Greg Nicotero, a guy named Div. Dave Kinlan, amazing animatronics guy, and Bob Kurtzman all kind of lived together in the same house in Reseda. So while Howard was gone, Bob and I hung out. I said, I've never seen a full head cast done. I've read about it. I've seen it in books. And I've tried it and it's failed every time. And Bob took me to, to see a full head cast being done out of Alginate at uh, John Buechler's studio. Wow. And, um, yeah, him and I got this friendship and I ended up mowing, uh, Howard's lawn in his house. So, uh, just, just to be around them and yeah. enough to say, Hey, you know, we need our lawn, lawn mode and we'll pay you. I think the going rate was five bucks. They paid me like 20 bucks or something to mow their lawn. So I, I was so fortunate to meet these guys that were like literally minutes away from me. So, and I'll never forget that, you know, a lot of artists had to come from other places and, I, and I'm very thankful for that. So, wow, man, especially all those guys. That's so cool. That like legends, you know, I, yeah. I talked to Brian Usna who worked with a lot of those guys oh, on yeah. all like the reanimator and like all those exactly. guys. So yeah. That's so great. <laughs> Brian Usna, John. Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. What was your first job? What was the first time you got onto like a set, was it through them? Like a connection through those guys? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my first job technically was Dave Kinlan because he didn't have a driver's license or something for some reason. He came from the East Coast, so it was all public transportation. And so Dave and I hung out all the time, and he he was one of the roommates. And he, but he was more of an animatronics guy. But yeah, because he didn't have a car, I ran him around to pick up supplies. So I knew where every, I knew where to get everything. You know, cables, foam latex, rubber, all the materials <laughs> I needed. It was him that actually said, "Hey, I'm working on Evil Dead Two, and I'm gonna make. Uh, I need to make a fiberglass jaw of the main uh, puppet head. Do you want to help me?" And I said, "Yeah, of course." Wow. To this day, technically, that was my first job. I, I think he paid wow. me. I can't remember. And then from then, it was like John Beekler has an opening, and this guy named Bruce Barlow introduced me to to John Beekler's and said, "Hey, if you're not doing anything for the summer, you know, I could think I could get you recommended to John Beekler's on Ghoulies 2. I'm like, "Yeah, oh, and nice." He, so that was technically my first job on Ghoulies 2. Um, running latex and polyfoam ghoulies puppets for the for the movie over summer vacation while I was in high school, I think. So, so you were still in high school? Wow, because IMDb probably has some of these wrong. Because one of the first credits they have on here is like Temple of Doom, and they have Predator on there. Yeah, Temple of Doom is wrong. I, I don't know how they got that. <laughs> so, on. No, because I, I was going to say when you were going through the ages, I was like, yeah, he would have been like thirteen yeah, years old, like- fourteen. Exactly. No, no, no. That's wrong. So sorry about that. But I've tried to get <laughs> No, it don't worry about that. But no, Ghoulies 2 was my first real movie. But That's then great. soon after that, while I was in still in high school, was Predator. And I got a screen credit. That was like one of my first big screen credits. And that was after the summer of Ghoulies 2. So 
I was already kind of had one foot in the industry and one foot in high school. And I was like, man, I, I just want to quit high school. And everybody was like, no, 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 no. At least finish <laughs> high school, you know? Yeah. Everybody was so nice. You know, they were so just thoughtful. And they're like, don't ruin your life. You know, at least go to high school. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to go to college. But <laughs> at least get your GED or high school diploma. So uh, I'm thankful for all my brothers in, in the makeup effects industry, for sure. Yeah, it's so cool that you were that young working on Ghoulies 2. Obviously, Predator is really cool. But Ghoulies 2, I just think that movie has so much. And I, that's what I wanted to ask you. So you were working on the actual creatures themselves, right? Because there's a part of that movie that it's like the superimposed like stop motion of their movement. I, I watched a little bit of it last night. So I was just wondering uh, what you worked on that. No, I ran the bodies for all the puppets. Um, so nice. I think there was a flying one, the, the toilet yeah. guy, all that stuff. I don't quite remember. All I remember is that was the funnest time. I've One of the funnest memories I've ever had because – Everybody there, the personalities were so amazing. All the, uh, yeah. To this day, I still know a lot of them. And there was no pressure of, oh, this, you're doing a bad job. You Whatever it was, it was a very free kind of spirited way of getting me into the industry. And I'll be quite honest, I've never seen the movie. So, uh, so okay. I have no idea what <laughs> it is. I did see Predator, but... Um, yeah, Ghoulies 2. I mean, a lot of times you, you actually don't get the chance to see the movies or whatever. And, and personally, I like non-monster movies. I like dr- dramatic movies. And, and now... Really? I, have, I now have... Well, actually, through the years, have discovered an appreciation for real filmmakers. You know, Martin Scorsese's, the, the I love Jim Cameron, actually. And, you know, European filmmakers. And I really got into film... As I got older, through through a friend of mine, um, the the late Matt Rose, you know, he was such an incredible teacher. He got me into Rick Baker's studio, and we became like very very close friends. And he had such an amazing uh, film uh, knowledge. I mean, akin to you know Tarantino and stuff. So, but anyways, I mean, I don't want to detract from. Oh no, that's no, don't worry. Yeah, I mean, after Ghoulies. Uh, I was still going to high school and yeah, Predator. I mean, because I met Matt Rose, who was Rick Baker's lead sculptor, and I was just freaking out. I met him at a baseball game because Howard Berger said, Hey, after you mow the lawn, he, Howard was at Rick Baker's studio at the time. He said, After you mow the lawn, we're having a baseball game. Rick, Rick Baker's studio is having a, a softball whatever <laughs> game. If you want to come along, I mean, just like Rick Baker. Yeah, I'll finish mowing the lawn. I fucking <laughs> pack my lawnmower into the truck, and I'm like, I'm there. Is that Brand Park in Glendale? And just being able to see Rick Baker was a dream to me. And he he was painting his house at the time. I saw him from afar. Never got to really meet him. I was just like uh, drilling, but I got to talk to Matt Rose the whole time. He was literally sitting next to me. We said hi, and we just bonded, and it was the best friendship I ever had. He, he passed away, unfortunately, recently, and he was such a mentor to me in so many ways. Wow. Um, and that's important. Like you said, like your brothers in the special effects, like to enter in a lot of the behind the scenes, it seems, you have to have somebody that looks out for you, and that's great that you had that 
in the earlier part, especially you're so young. Some people would be like, hey, kid, get out of here. Exactly. But it's great that they took to you. He was, I, I think it was a good judge of character, meaning he just saw that this kid lived and dreamed uh, makeup effects. And I made a Joker mask, but I told him, you know, I, I didn't know what to do with the hair. I, I, I don't know how to dye hair. I hate hair. I hate working with hair. And literally the next time I saw him, he had a bag of green yarn and he combed it out and he goes, Hey, I was thinking you could use this, you know, I never forgot that that was how kind and thoughtful he was. And he was just like willing to help people. I was like, Oh my God, yeah, that would work great. And sure enough, I made a Joker mask with that hair. And Ever since then, we were, we were just inseparable. It was just like I hung out with him all the time. And then he eventually introduced me to another artist. I saw his work before I knew him, Steve Wang. And Steve Wang's work is incredible. When I saw it, I was blown away as well as Matt's work. And I met Steve, I think, at John Beekler's for some reason. Somehow we all ended up there. And then... Steve eventually went on to art direct and head up Predator at Stan Winston's studio. And because I knew both of them, they were like, hey, we need help. Because I don't know if you know the backstory, but Predator was kind of the the show nobody wanted to work on because Stan Winston was directing a movie and all of his key guys wanted to work on that. So there's really nobody av- uh, available to work on Predator. And... Boss Films had attempted it, then they stopped, they had a hiatus, then John McTiernan oh, wow. came to Stan and then said, hey, will you take this on, Stan's sure, and then put Steve Wang in charge of the art direction and Matt Rose, and then it became what it became, and then they invited me, um, and I was still going to high school through uh, Christmas <laughs> vacation, <laughs> so I had like two weeks of Christmas vacation, I said, I can work for you guys for two weeks. So yeah, yeah. So I worked on Predator for like two two weeks, and and I'm always included in these crew interview things, and I'm so thankful. But you know, I only worked on it for two weeks, guys. But everybody's talking about like they're like, what what'd you do on Christmas vacation? They're going around like, oh, I went to my aunt's, and you were working on Predator. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I'm looking back, I'm so thankful because nobody knew what Predator was at the time. And yeah, that's true. When it became what it became, then it's just like whoa. And I was, I didn't even really, again, pay attention to the movie much. I wasn't in the filmmaking. I was just looking at the effects. I took my dad and it was my first movie credit. And I was like, hey, look, my name's up there. That, that was cool. So. <laughs> That's so awesome. And then like right after that, it's like, again, you're still young, but at that point with the connections and people knowing that you had like that desire to just keep doing it, it like took off. Cause right from there, like 89 on, like you're working so much every year, Sweet Home, Deep Star Six, Return of the Swamp yeah. Thing, all in '89. Yeah, yeah, that. Um, so that's that's what I call my pre-Rick Baker days. So I was yeah. kind of like a freelance artist, right? And then the art, the industry is so small, and because back then there were no schools, so it's like kind of how do you hire people? How do you find people that are interested in this? So it's kind of word of mouth. So I was lucky enough that my name kind of kind of started getting circulated around. And, and then when I graduated high school, um, it was amazing because Steve Wang, Matt Rose, Howard Berger, Bob Kurtzman, they're all in my high school picture. Aaron Kruger, who's now like heading up American Horror Story. 
they're all my high school graduation picture in this big That's group amazing. of people. And, you know, they, everybody was kind of like there's these young artists starting out. And then it was all kind of strange for me to hear, oh, Eddie Yang's graduated high school. And, you know, he's got calls like crazy and got job offers like crazy. So I started working around. Sweet Home was a Japanese movie and Rick Baker was called to consult on it. So Matt Rose was already working in Japan and said he needed help. So he called me and said, hey, are you willing to fly out to Japan for like a month or two and help me finish this project? And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I just, <laughs> so I told my parents, hey, I'm going to put college plans on, on hold and I'm going to go to Japan and see how this works out. I just, I mean, they paid me well. And I, the first time I ever heard of per diem and I, I bought Came home with like tons of Japanese model kits, books, inspiration, and bought my first car on my with my own money. It was just like, mom and dad, do I really have to go to college? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. So I'm living my dream. So that was yeah, that was amazing. So and then yeah, a few other freelance jobs before I started at Rick Baker's, and then is that where you met? Like, got that connection with Rick while you're over there. So then when yeah, you came uh, out, because next year later is Gremlins 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That That's the first time I kind of met him. I believe I met him and talked to him. It was like the first time. Oh, no, there was a Monster Maker contest, actually, where we technically first met, shook hands or whatever, because I, I won uh, one of the placements um, for that contest. So, you know, I kept running into Rick, the baseball game, the monster yeah. game contest. Now in Japan, so I was like, oh, he's got to notice me, right? Maybe I can work <laughs> for him one day. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was cool. I did meet him in Japan briefly. And then, yeah, after Japan is when it kind of started happening. And I, and I feel bad for it. There was a guy named Tim Lawrence that knew about Yeah, me. I interviewed him. Oh, really? Before he passed away? Yeah. Yeah, I interviewed him, and then while I was interviewing this guy, Steve Neal, he told me that Tim passed away, and I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I interviewed Tim probably, he was like one of the first interviews I ever did, and uh, I chatted with him, I think like seven months before he passed away. Oh, wow. He always has a special place in my heart because he was one of the people that hired me right out of high school, and he had Beetlejuice, yeah. Oh, cool. the stop motion sequences where they pull their faces out and yeah. doing all that stuff. So I was the sculptor that helped him clean up his sculptures and um, painted all the stop motion models for him. And yeah, it was, it was a bunch of uh, replacement animation, I think is what it's called. And all these like, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 sculptures that uh, made that sequence. So I'd worked for him. And he always was such a supporter of mine. I was so young. He was so kind to me and just gave me uh, a lot of work, a lot of praises and a lot of uh, advice. So uh, Tim will always. Wow. Look at that. Yeah. Look at that connection. He told me a funny story about that because he said, I worked on these little things for so long. And then there was like a little earthquake and 
he like drove down to the studio and he's like, I went down there and nothing was damaged or something crazy. Like he's like three months of my life could have been wasted if like that studio got damaged, but he like got yeah, there yeah. and there's nothing. <laughs> yeah. Cause they were all on a shelf. All yeah. 50, the statues, you know, all these, these little plaster uh, miniatures. Yeah. So labor intensive. Yeah. I mean, and he was a genius. He's a Rick Baker uh, alumni as well. He worked for Rick for many years. Yeah, he was all the way from the Thriller. That was the first time I think he worked with Rick was on the Thriller video. And then he was in the Thriller video too. Exactly. He's the blue bloated zombie guy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So, yes. So, so Gremlins 2. What were some of the things that you worked on on the creatures? Um, Gremlins 2, I was mainly responsible for the effects. So Steve and Matt had been hired at Rick Baker's studio. And literally every major artist in the film industry right now doing whatever, effects, makeup, specialty costume, just about everybody was on that project. Um, that, that's wow. a somebody today. Um, amazing collection of people. Probably one of the biggest crews ever assembled for a makeup effects show. And it was my second Rick Baker project. The first one was a small TV show. And, and then, you know, I didn't know how the industry worked. And they kind of said, okay, go home now, you know, take a take it off. And then they call me. We'll call you for the next show, maybe. And then they called me for Gremlins 2. So then, um, but this was after the R&D period where Steve and Matt had already done tons of designs for some of the main characters, Mohawk, the main Gremlins. Uh, background problems and so on and they they hired tons of artists just to help design and all that stuff so tim lawrence comes in because he had he had migrated to ilm at the time and was working on ghostbusters 2 and he called me and said hey you want to come up and work on ghostbusters 2 and i said sure Um, i'm in japan now i think when i come back yeah and then they had called me to work on gremlins and i'm like oh my god and uh they had already set up an apartment for me up in ilm up north all this stuff and i had to call tim and say tim i'm sorry but rick baker is calling me to work on gremlins 2 and he's my idol i know i said yes but um i feel like a total jerk and he's like no don't worry about it and, uh the rest is history so i, I chose rick he's my idol yeah. and yeah so when i got hired gremlins 2 i was mainly in charge of the effects so hey eddie um this gremlin's a bubble his back needs to bubble up when water hits it to figure it out uh hey there's these cocoons and they need to look like they're breathing and they need to be in the pipes up in the attic so you know figure it out and it, it, that That's was awesome. kind of like my my job on it so that was so fun because i got to figure out effects similar to what tom savini does but at Rick Baker's studio and with all these things. And then I later I got to do more artistic stuff. I got to paint the back gremlin. And then Doug Beswick did the stop motion for the back gremlin and uh, the spider gremlin. And Steve Wang was my idol. And he showed me the steps of how to paint the spider gremlin. So I painted both stop motion models for the spider gremlin and the back gremlin. And, you know, just it was an amazing experience because I got to do artistic stuff. I got to do engineering. I got to figure out effects. So yeah. Um, yeah. So bubbling backs, melting gremlins, um, 
I love that it was figure it out and then you were able to learn on the spot. That's got to be. Well, the, Rick projects back then were just like, we have time, you know, just we want yeah. the best results. So figure it out, you know, and some of the stuff didn't take that long. You know, they, they had, they wanted me to figure out translucent gremlin ears. And so the, the, or mogwai ears. So when light shines through it. So, you know, I try all these things and I was just like, Oh, you know, latex and you put the veins in like this as like yarn you know like matt showed me with hair and uh yeah. polyfilm and it works great and light shines through and looks good and then rick's like yeah yeah this looks good okay fine so <laughs> every time rick approves something it's like yeah cool you know so but that was that was kind of like i guess my proving myself is like hey figure this out and i did it and i don't know if i would i was just selfish or i, I didn't know obviously what a what a business owner thinks a business owner thinks i want to give this guy a project and i don't want him to ask me any questions because i have a hundred other things to deal with right yeah. <laughs> but at the time i was just selfish like i'm gonna figure this out i'm not gonna ask anybody i'm not gonna you know bother anybody and, and so i did that that's exactly what kind of i think rick was looking for at the time so so it all worked out <laughs> that's awesome and then i mentioned his name before and then Obviously, you know it from being in the industry, but Brian Usna, then next year later, you worked with, you worked on The Giver, right? And he produced that? Yeah. So, so Steve was, so, okay. So if you haven't interviewed Steve or your, your audience doesn't know about him, he is this groundbreaking artist. Okay. Meaning like I have a few people that really changed what stuff. So there's a, a million amazing artists in our industry, right? And they can make yeah, amazing yeah. stuff. It's always cool. You're always going to get a cool reaction. But somebody that really changed the game, H.R. Giger, right? H.R. Giger had this style that is so H.R. Giger and changed creature art, whatever you want to call it, forever. That's a milestone. The next person, in my opinion, Steve Wang. He took... Back when people were doing uh, zombies and uh, bloated purple colored people and, I don't know, very kind of bland designs, he was doing groundbreaking stuff. And he was taking reptile paint jobs and amphibian paint jobs and saying, this is what should be on your aliens and this is what should be on your whatever. And to this day, we still paint spots on aliens yeah. and reptilian patterns because of him that that's how groundbreaking it was and predator he wow. did predator right that's how groundbreaking oh, yeah. and visionary he was so and still is and so he so he he was doing all sorts of groundbreaking stuff in our industry and then he all of a sudden he said i want to direct and he wanted to direct films. He wanted to challenge himself and do the next thing he was interested and passionate. And that was that happened to be uh, he had done um, a film called Kung Fu Rascals, in which he got all his friends, myself included, to uh, do effects for and stuff. And it was shot on Super Eight at the time. At the time before pre digital, there was Super Eight sixteen thirty five. Super Eight's like amateur format. Sixteen's yeah. like. Like pro student format, somewhat pro cinema, and the 35 obviously is pro cinema and this division yeah. and so on, right? Um, so he was shooting a Super 8, but he's like, hey, look at this, these transfers I'm doing. They're, they're actually pretty cool, and I think I could do it. So, so he chose Super 8. Kung Fu Rascals, that was the film. 
and I did the two war gods for him afterwards. So after he sold the rights or whatever happened to that, he got the opportunity to direct the Giver. So um, the Kung Fu Rascals was his portfolio piece, if you will. And when the Giver opportunity came up, he was like, hey, Eddie, you want to work on this and so on? And he was teamed up with a guy named Screaming Mad George. I love um, him, yeah. Yeah, Japanese artists. So they were co-directing. They were both directing the film. And they got Vivian Wu at the time, and she was huge, and um, Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, to be in the film. Yeah. And so this is like, wow, this is like a real film. This is pretty cool. This is not Kung Fu Rascals anymore. <laughs> so I headed up the, the creature department along with a guy named Moto Hada, who has passed away. Brilliant artist. He did Mark Hamill's creature for the film. And Steve assembled some of the best effects guys in town. Jim Cagle, Jordu Shells, Moto, myself, uh, Scream Man George did one. And then, of course, Steve um, designed the Giver. And everybody kind of had their own creature to do. And my, my creature was named Lisker. And that was like the main evil guy. And I just remember Steve would art direct me and coach me. He's like, hey, Eddie, this is your predator. This is your predator. You know, make it good. Make it awesome. It's like, oh, yeah, Steve. Yeah, it's going to be as good as I can make it. <laughs> and um, so, the, yeah, that was that was the Giver. Um, so it was just uh, monster making orgy fest just for creature <laughs> guys. And, yeah. So and, and to this day, there's like this fan group out there, which I never even heard of. And, you know, they contacted me. I had made a Lisker little model kit for a Japanese company that never got produced. And these guys are like, hey, how much money can we raise for you to cast it and send us copies to everybody that wants one and so on? So this whole this whole kind of sub underground fan base that I never never knew about. I was like, oh, wow, this is so cool. That's awesome. I talked to. I talked to Peter Spellos, who's who was in that movie. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. How's he doing? <laughs> uh he's good. He was uh, one of those guys that worked with a lot of Roger Corman and Jim Wynorski, who did Return the Swamp Thing. So he did a lot of those movies. But yeah, no, he loved that. That's another movie. He told me too that he was getting contacted about like this cult of that movie yeah, yeah. and like. Exactly. Working with Mark Hamill because he was a huge Star Wars fan. So, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> and then, and then, it pretty much from there. Obviously, you had the connection with Rick ba- Baker. You have Batman Forever, Men in Black, all of these different movies. I was pretty much uh, at Rick's studio for thirteen years, and wow. I never knew about the outside. Never cared about what was going on, all the other movies and other studios and just was so comfortable there uh, working alongside, you know, Matt Rose, Aaron Sims. It was like a family. I mean, we're we're just this tight knit family, whatever Rick, whatever project Rick got, he would immediately come down and share with us how the meeting went and what the director said and all these hilarious stories. (laughs) (laughs) How, directors perceive effects and how they can do stuff and, and all this stuff and his stories of, you know, the studio doesn't pay me and he's tr- always trying to go after them to get, to get their, his money. 
<laughs> and eventually that that led to him being you know sick of the business you know which is so unfortunate and left a bad taste in his mouth but invaluable experience i mean it was so i mean i went to i never went to my prom and like i had a date with a young lady one time and rick was like putting my tux together using oh. two-sided tape i mean cause i was like 18 19 you know, when I, when I started there, so he was so much like a father figure to me and saw me grow up and, and I learned so much at his studio, um, which is, you know, to this day, that's why we're still such good friends. And, um, so yeah, I mean, every movie that went through Rick's shop, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be a part of, and, um, eventually I became one of the, um, the designers there they they call these days they call them concept designers and i didn't realize back then but i was just sculpting maquettes because we didn't have computers we just would sculpt things in clay and little models and things so rick would get a show we'd read the script okay there's a monster and then we would you know sculpt the maquette of our version matt rose was was one of those guys that that did always incredible designs I was lucky enough to be somebody that was able to do that too. And wow. Aaron, Aaron Sims and so on. So, and that was our lives for years. And, and eventually he moved to this bigger studio where we all got our own little offices and I could just turn the lights off and just have focus on my sculpting. And that's all I did for years. That's how I honed my skills and stuff like that at Rick Baker's studio. And then, I don't know, one morning Gary Oldman will walk in. It's like, oh, hey, who are you here to see? And, you know, it's just so surreal. But it's so, at the same time, so cool, you know. <laughs> Do you remember, like, the first one? Because on IMDb, it's never, like, 100%. But, like, they have for Batman Forever Sculptor next to your name. Yeah, yeah. And at this time, I was kind of like, I always saw myself as the guy that would jump in wherever we needed me to pick up whatever needed to be picked up so i was yeah i sculpted the miniature bat body nightmare bat sequence or something some big huge bat i think that was that i think so I think that's what I did I think so. okay so maybe i was a sculptor <laughs> that's all i did was sculpt the bat body for it and then, oh and no, i painted the bat wings and stuff and, and glued stuff together and that was always like a big thing too is like yeah, you have your superstar sculptors, painters, but those guys, as well as myself, also assembled things, which take a lot of time, understanding yeah. how materials work, fabrics work, to know how to assemble things together, uh, to know to do before, after the hair work is done or painting is done. Just, just overall knowledge and kind of supervising and making sure that the project kind of comes together in the order that it should and get sent to set on time. And then if, if we had to, we went on set with it to accompany it. So, yeah, I think on that one, it was mainly the big bat sequence, um, nightmare sequence, I believe. It's so crazy thinking about it. Like your age at that time, like 95, you're only like 25 or 26. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's amazing. I was living and breathing this stuff. Yeah, no, I know. At this old age that I'm at, I'm like, if you can be passionate about something, 
and lucky enough because there's a lot of people that don't even know what they want to do by that age oh yeah but if you're lucky enough to have i always say art chose me at a young age then you know what you want to do you're like driven you're obsessed oh yeah and you will fight your parents you will fight naysayers you will fight you know don post jr told me not to do you know (laughs) it's just like you know what you want to do and (laughs) yeah that's that was the benefit i had so that's i i'm lucky and thankful for that so yeah so when was like the switch to like digital like Oh. What, what was it like the late nineties that everybody that you had to learn it? Cause you knew all of this. Where was like the switch? Okay. So all of us as makeup effects artists are watching the movies. Right. And then, um, what was it? A, you know, uh, abyss comes out. Terminator two comes out. We're all just, yeah. Every time we see it, you know, we're huge fans. Of course we're watching. We're just like, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, digital is going to take over, but they can't do skin. They can't. Yeah, they can't do skin or hair. And yeah, we're going to have jobs. We'll be fine. And then all of a sudden, whatever Golem comes out, and like, oh crap! They're Jurassic Park, and then we're just like, shit. <laughs> like, okay. So they're getting better. Eventually, they're gonna do skin. Eventually, they're gonna do hair. They can do dinosaurs. Mighty Joe Young comes out, and it's like, oh, okay, he's full of hair. It's like they're replacing the gorilla hair. And then I was just like, okay, you know, and my friend Aaron Sims already saw the writing on the wall. You know, he got himself a computer, which I didn't even know what the hell it was at the time. Really? Yeah. I mean, seriously, we did not know. I didn't know how to use a mouse. I didn't know what a computer was, except that it was super expensive and it was a box <laughs> and, and a keyboard on it. I didn't understand the concept. It's just like, what are you doing? Why? How do you get that into a movie? You know. So Aaron Sims bought one, but uh, to be honest, actually Rick Baker started buying computers, and then he he bought like the first Photoshop. He started experimenting it with it, and then he showed Aaron, and Aaron's like, "Whoa!" And Aaron got it right away. <laughs> and Aaron started showing me because we hung out all the time. Aaron and I were like thick as thieves, and then Aaron's like, "You got to learn this." Yeah, I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, whatever." And then after Golem, I think I was like, uh, okay, what was that you're talking about? <laughs> and okay, uh, how much does it cost? Okay, and I bought one. I bought a $5,000 computer at the time. And I was like, holy oh crap. I didn't know how to use it. I didn't know anything about it. So I'd start going over to Aaron's house twice a week, and we would train and learn Soft Image. And that was the 3D program, one of the 3D programs that ILM used for Abyss, I believe. I believe they use Softimage for like animation and then they use Maya for other things. And so, okay, so his teacher was a guy named Greg Punchettes and he was in based in Texas and he had already learned all the digital software and he was, he was coaching Aaron and Aaron would coach me. So we would, so like I said, I was at his house twice a week and we would go hiking, do fun stuff. And I, at, the whole time, I was so again. I was like, Aaron, I could sculpt it. The one thing I would, I would play with my thumb. I gotta press like ten buttons to do the same thing. <laughs> didn't get it. Just it just was not sinking in. Then Rick Baker had his first layoff, and he's like, 
I don't know if I want to do this anymore, you know, and the, I hate producers and studios and whatever. So he shut his doors. I was just like, oh, crap. You know, what do I do for a living now? And Aaron was prepared. He had already been doing digital, had his portfolio together. He migrated over to Stan Winston Studios and showed Stan Winston all this digital technology. Stan had not adopted that yet. And Stan saw the potential. Next thing you know, Aaron's like his main designer. He's like designing AI for Steven Spielberg. He's like doing all these robot designs. The computer's so much faster. He's cranking out photoreal illustrations for AI in like days, you know? Wow. So he's like, Eddie, Eddie, you gotta, you gotta, you know, if you, if you haven't loved the computer, you better, this is the future. And I'm doing this groundbreaking stuff. And I'm like, oh crap. Okay. So, you know, I hunkered down and kept studying. Rick Baker luckily opened a shop again and I went back for three more years but the difference was at lunch now, every single time at lunch, I wouldn't go out to lunch with the guy. I would be there in front of the computer for like an hour studying. What, what is this? What is still didn't kick in. I mean, this, this is dense right here. This, this guy I never went to college. Right. So it's like, I've been doing this crap for like six months. And then they changed it. X, it became soft and became XSI. And I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. You know? I just learned everything. Now the interface is different. All the buttons are in different places. I'm like, F you guys. You know, I was so upset. But I'm like, okay, I just got to calm down. I just got to learn this stuff. So I kept doing what I was doing. And then all of a sudden, one day, I don't know what got into me. I, I noticed there was a button that said camera. Because I thought the entire program, the software, was for sculpting. Because that's what I'd been taught. And I'm like, what is this camera button? And I, and I clicked on it. And, and there's this like little wireframe camera, like, oh shit, you know, that's a camera and there's a focal point. There's another button that says lights. Then it jumped. That day, everything made sense. This is a movie studio in the form of software. It's not a sculpting program. And I started making tunnels and I started flying the camera through it. And I was just, that's the day that changed my life. Wow! And from that day on, I was just like, I get it now. I get it. I, and all this stuff made sense. I'm like, why wouldn't a director love digital? Because they don't have to make decisions on the spot. They can wait five months later and post and say, yeah, I like the creature red. Yeah, yeah. It should be. Nah, change it green. And with a couple yeah. buttons, you can change. I suddenly just, it's like Space Odyssey, the last sequence, just all oh, this stuff started flowing in and it all made sense so that was the day man that was the epiphany and i never looked back and i, I just soaked it up everything made sense i got a portfolio together rick baker had a second layoff and i was ready and i, I just did what aaron did and i got my first job at a place called pixel liberation front where this guy ken Seki was just like i don't care if you know the software the, what what's on your reel what you've done and with your uh practical effects knowledge i want to hire you that was my first digital job and it was doing uh rendered shots for uh sky captain world of tomorrow oh nice and i was blown away i mean totally different environment man it was just like makeup effects i could sculpt and i could insult my friends over there and i can have fun 
digital production for me the transition was just like it's like information going in your brain every day and they don't make it easy the the shots are like called fg 457 hey eddie did you work on fg 457 last week uh i think so he goes i need to stop sr 251 pick up fg 457 i was just like headache every night that i left that studio i was like this is insane this is ridiculous i gotta start drinking this is sucks <laughs> i had literally a headache every night but that's digital production so when i hear people ask have you worked in a digital production environment now i know what they're saying you know it's yeah. highly stressful very technical and you can't have the emotions and the time and the patience that you had as a practical artist because you're like sculpting it takes time and you're like joking with your friends you're listening to music but this is like you got to be focused every second so that, that was a crazy transition it was, it was really interesting but <laughs> but at least you're able to still work on people are not transitioning fully back but you do see more practical effects like being done nowadays right yeah i think it's I think it's a novelty, and as a, a wise friend of me once told me, uh, it, it, it's it's more like a choice of the director and what he wants. It's like Tim Burton might cho- might choose stop motion for a sequence, even though that's that's technology that was used, you know, back in the nineteen fifties or whatever. Yeah, but he thinks that it has an aesthetic to it that's kind of cool or whatever he wants to do. I believe it's the same thing. It's like. Oh, you know, Mandalorian. Oh, you know, throwback to the old Star Wars. We need rubber creatures. You know, and there's a whole fan base with that. So I base, I I think it's more an aesthetic choice rather than the technology or whatever. And and I believe if a director wants to tell a story, now that I watch films because I like the films and the storytelling, (laughs) and he doesn't want the audience to say, hey, that that's cool that they chose to use CG instead of prosthetic. I believe if they want it invisible, you know, they'll probably choose CG. And a lot of films, I say, I have no idea what's CG these days and what's, what's practical because it's so good. And so I really believe we're at a point now, which is really the style of the director, what what kind of, what they want. It's not a versus thing. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It's so funny. It is so good at some points because you'll look up things from a movie. I can't think of any off the top of my head. And you're like, what? That was done on a computer? It looks that good. So you're right. There's like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, and and I love, and it's a whole new generation. You know, it's like we have now become the old guard. And there's this whole new generation of kids and artists that are growing up with a hundred percent digital effects and they don't know the difference and they're growing up with it. So now they're going to be used to it and they are tomorrow's audience. So it really doesn't matter what we think in our 60 year old brains, right? You know, we're irrelevant (laughs) at this point. So we might as well stay home and watch our Scorsese movies. (laughs) Yeah. And then I think it's so cool. Some of the, some of the things you've worked on, like, like so many different movies. Like, so when you're a concept artist, when you're brought in for a movie like, like RIPD or Robocop or Pixel, what do they have you come in and do? Is it like specific characters or like laying out what 
the movie should look like. Yeah, um, laying out what the movie looks like is more the production designer's job. But yeah, for like pixels, I was contacted by the costume designer. So she asked me to design costumes for certain characters. You know, RIPD was a creature thing. And from what I heard, everybody in town worked on it. So they wanted uh, specifically creature A, B, C, and D. And they all had names, you know, and stuff. And and they'll have little notes like creature A, I want, I want, he's got to be thin or creature b needs to be a fat kind of obese character and, and so on so the director always gives you notes parameters and then have you design within those parameters and see what you come up with so and that it, it's very liberating it's very cool um so it's almost mathematical now um as a concept designer uh input rules what you got to stick yeah. within and then output based on what you think is cool, what you've noticed other directors react to, the version one, two, and three, and then the director kind of picks. And then I always look at it as a language, like learning a new language, because every director, every artist is different. It's like, I want you to make it beautiful, but what does that mean to me versus you yeah. versus this guy? So I can make something beautiful. They're like, oh, that's creepy, you know? So, oh, okay. So I often give several variations so I can learn the language of what that director is speaking. So once he chooses one, then I know what language he speaks. Right. So it's like, I'll, I'll do several variations. He let, Oh, I I really like this one. I I really like the feel. Oh, so when you said beautiful, you really meant comical, whatever. (laughs) But that's, that's kind of the challenge of being concept artist is really figuring out the language and then, of course, that director can communicate with you, which is why directors and a lot of filmmakers, collaborative film, like to work with people they worked with before because those are shorthand. Yeah. So if I'm new, obviously, I want to figure out that shorthand right away, right? So, so that that's kind of the challenge when you when you're a concept designer. No, you're right. That's why a lot of directors that I've talked to they work with like a lot of the same people because it's one less thing they have to, you know building that new relationship while you're trying to juggle so many different things. Like like you're saying Rick was doing while he was on set. It was like, all right, you figure it out because I'm going to, my head's in, you know, getting pulled in a hundred different directions. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And you'll know like, Oh, I'm going to work with whatever Guillermo del Toro. And when he says red, it means green. Oh, okay. Yeah. So (laughs) it was always that shorthand. So a couple of things I saw in here that were coming out. Well, one you have coming out soon in 2022, Monkey Man. You you designed a mask for that movie? Yeah, yeah. That was um, – so I I teamed up with some other artists, Joey Orozco and, and a couple of directors, Kenny Gage, Kenny Gage uh, Robert Bukaj. They, they were forming a studio called Symbolic Arts. And they were like kind of asking me to join. And I had just left a partnership with my mentor, uh, Steve Wang, Alliance Studio. And Steve had told me that he wanted to direct movies and kind of do different things. So I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, We had a studio for six years. And I said, okay, I get it. No problem. And so I was kind of like a free-floating entity. And then (laughs) Joey heard that I was around. And then Joey's more of a traditional artist. And, of course, he was thinking, wow, if I had – Eddie as a digital partner, you know, that'd be amazing. So he kind of said, Hey, can you 
park your stuff over here and kind of uh, be part of our studio and let's see if we can get some projects going. Uh, of course, COVID hit right at that time and then yeah. everything shut down. And But we were still kind of working on a few projects actually. And then um, I was contacted, oh, a good friend of mine, Kazu, uh, recommended me for Monkey Man. So I brought that into Symbolic Studios and then that's it. That is uh, Deb Patel's first directorial debut. Um, oh, wow. Cool. A, the main actor in Slumdog Millionaire was probably his most famous role. He was also in Lion, which is a movie I loved. Awesome and, movie. Yeah. And yeah, this is the first time he was directing. And uh, I can't say much about it at this point right now, but he had designed something very important in the film to the character. <laughs> Cool. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was awesome working with him. I don't think he's worked with closely with effects designers, like the more sophisticated effects type stuff. So it was a wonderful experience. It was awesome. It was short, super short time frame. It's for Netflix. It's going to come out uh, 2022 next year. And from what I've seen, it should be awesome. So, so yeah. Sweet. I interviewed Brahim. He's in the movie. Brahim, uh, he's from France, but he's been in a ton of like awesome movies of like bad guys. He's been oh, in like cool. The Mechanic 2. Really cool dude. Oh, nice. Nice. You've interviewed a lot of people. Yeah, no, I love doing this. We started this as like a, on a whim and like, like honestly, that one of the first people that said yes was. Tim Lawrence. It was like Jerry Miner from SNL and Mr. Show and like a ton of stuff. He said yes. Tim and Lance Kinsey, who was Proctor in Police Academy, were like the first few people that said yes. And then from there, it just kept going. And I just love learning about the ins and outs and just really people's origin stories. I think that's the coolest thing. Like, I'm not the biggest superhero movie fan of, of, of the newer generation. But I love origin stories, like hearing your story about how you started. I think it's like so fascinating, you know? Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody has a story. It's, it's you know, they're all interesting. And it's like, how did, how did everybody get to where they are, you know? So, but yeah. Yeah, you have to not only meet your hero, but work with him and form a bond with him that you still have to this day yeah. with like Rick Baker, which is neat. So here's two questions. I, I always try to ask folks questions at the end and this has been so much fun. You've created a ton of creatures and you know, over the years, do you have like, is there one that stands out that was like your favorite to work on? Cause you have like so many different movies too. Like there's men in black planet of the apes. So there's all these different types. Do you have a favorite? Uh, yeah, I have a favorite project, and I always mention this project. It, it was when I was partnered with Steve Wang for Line Studio, and it was a project for Blizzard, the video game company. Nice. And they they came to us to do their marketing campaign for their new uh, video game, uh, which is called Overwatch, which is probably old now, but it was the. Uh, debut of overwatch i think they, they had beta testers all, all along the way and the concept was um they wanted it to be three of their characters the main video game characters to be unveiled as collectible toys that were like 16 feet tall 
<laughs> in three different cities that would just magically appear overnight and be on display for the public for like two weeks or something like that. I was like, oh my God, this is so cool, but how, how the hell are we going to do this? And of course, it was like, yeah, yeah, we could do it. <laughs> and, uh, so I think I got the call in December. And then I think by February, we were in production. So it took all of January. Often these things take, because they're so expensive, it takes a lot of back yeah. and forth financing, contracts. So I think by February, we were working on it. It was due by May, I think, including shipping. <laughs> so what I like to do often is work backwards, right? I'm saying, okay, the size of the size of the things and how you're going to get it there. And we worked with a logistics company called NA Collective. And they were figuring out that because uh, the three cities at the time, I think, were, were Paris and Los Angeles and uh, an Asian city, which uh, later became Busan. And Paris, the streets are narrow. How do we get this huge thing through there? I loved working with NA Collective and seeing all the people and how they thought about logistics. How do we get the, these on the trucks? How do we get the trucks to the narrow streets of Paris? Where do we put the trucks afterwards? Where do we put the shipping boxes? You know, all of this stuff goes on behind the scenes just to make that display and set it up, let alone making the display itself, right? So making the figures were pretty straightforward, um, except for the fact of the time frame. So I did something that I don't think we usually do in film or anything else. I, I told, I said to Blizzard, cause we actually had a pretty good working relationship with Blizzard. We had done a lot of their characters for BlizzCon and so on. I said, Hey, we'll do this, but you guys can't make any comments. We got to just keep going. You can't say, I want this changed. I want that changed, or whatever. You know? <laughs> and they agreed to it. And I was like, okay, wow. cool. Okay. So this is another step forward. Right. And, I, so they gave us their video game models and we modeled in uh, joints. So it looked like toy, toy joints, right? Little ball and ball and socket joints and stuff like that. Yeah. And I told them number two, <laughs> what we need you to agree on is we don't have the time to make molds and cast these things out of fiberglass. So we're just going to 3d print them and use the prints. Right. <laughs> and these are 12 foot figures and at the research at the time, all that I knew was heat was probably going to be the worst thing that could happen to them. And they were going to be enclosed in toy boxes. So it looks like a, a box that you would find at Toys R Us or something or a toy store. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that could generate heat. So we started doing studies on the weather, when the campaign was going to be released. We put fans in there, AC systems and all this stuff just to counteract that, just in case something were to happen. And so they agreed on that. They they wrote off that, and they were we were on our way. They were like, okay, don't bother us, <laughs> and we're gonna we're gonna make this happen. And sure enough, I mean, I can't believe it to this day. And it's something Stan Winston did. Stan, uh, from what I heard stories where Steven Spielberg says, you know, I want a full scale hydraulic animatronic T Rex. Says, yep, we know how to do that. After the meeting, Stan turns to his crew, how the hell are we going to do this? Yeah. <laughs> we took a little bit of that and just said, yeah, absolutely. We can do this. We got this. No problem. And then, it, you know, we had to hit the, the drawing board and figure this out. 
all I have to say is smoothest project ever. I uh, we had to divide our team up because they had to be unveiled as close to each other as possible. But of course, with the time difference, yeah. Um, I think Paris and L.A. or something were the first ones, and the Busan was the last one. I went to Busan in Korea with uh, Farah, the character that we did. And then I was able to fly back and see tr- the Trancer character at in Hollywood before they, they took it to the same, like two hours before we were going to take it down. I flew back and I was able to be on two continents with both uh, characters wow. in the project. Um, but one of my proudest moments because I was really kind of in charge of the logistics and how we we're going to do it, scheduled it, budgeted. Of course, the amazing crew that we had and just the kick assness that they had all the way through. Um, EGADS, this this company in Vegas, did the boxes, which were made out of aluminum, and we secured our figures to the back of it and shoved them into the front. We used the biggest plexiglass sheet we could find <laughs> in the entire country <laughs> and it was a one inch thick plexi that comprised the box to make it look like the clear plastic that were on toy boxes yeah we later found out that that fit it gave us an inch on each side of the cargo plane it was so massive <laughs> uh if we had made it any bigger it wouldn't have fit but but we thought about all this beforehand but i'm yeah, just yeah. saying because we looked into the Beluga plane from Air France, which is the biggest cargo ship on the planet. So we really studied the, the crap out of this thing. And today, still to this day, is my proudest moment just because of the logistics involved and all the thought involved. Yeah. It really elevated me from this, you know, grease paint makeup guy <laughs> kid to figuring out logistics for these huge, crazy toy statue things. So that's why I choose that as to this day, still my proudest moment. And that's awesome. Project. So, yeah, it's just that's it's so my cool. evolution as an artist. You know, <laughs> what year was this? Because I'm sure I could find it online. There's probably YouTube videos of that, right? Was that early to early 2010s that game or no? Um, COVID. My it was probably two three years before COVID. I want to say. Oh, okay. I'm sure so, I could find. It. I'll look it up as soon as we're done. That's awesome. Another question I always like to ask folks, because you don't know, like when you're in, in the moment on your first set, second set, did you ever have any like keepsakes that you like kept from set? Did, do you have stuff like that? I have all my backstage passes. All my, I've oh, from nice. Avatar, the Grinch, Planet of the Apes, all the, the, uh, what do they call it? Lanyards or, uh, yeah. yeah Lanyards. And of course, Avatar is one of my favorite because, wow, you know, he became one of my favorite directors also because just of his intelligence and groundbreaking, the way he thinks, all this stuff. There's this thing called Masterclass that he speaks on. I immediately subscribed when I knew that he was going to be a, a teacher just to see how this guy thinks. I mean, he's amazing. Yeah. He does everybody's job as if he was a professional in that field. So when he talked to us about makeup effects, he was using our terminology, everything, you know, he's just like a makeup effects guy. So it was amazing to work aside James Cameron. That's why that pass has so much meaning for me personally to see what he was doing, the groundbreaking stuff on Avatar. 
and you know, I think the Stan Winston guys for accepting a Rick Baker alumni into their studio yeah. when Rick closed his doors <laughs> to give me that experience and give me a credit on Avatar. That was so cool. So, you know. Yeah, and I think with Cameron, the one thing that I love about him is that he like came up from the you know, from the bottom. Corman. You know? Yeah, Corman, yeah. Roger Corman. He, he was a graduate. As well as yeah, he was doing the set building with his buddy, yeah. the late Bill Paxton. So that yeah. I I remember watching a video with Bill Paxton, and he talks about when Jim made him uh, audition for Aliens, and he gave him like a movie poster tube, and he out in England, and he was like, "Pretend that there's an alien over there," and he he was filming him on a little on a big camera and having him like fake shoot with this like cardboard poster tube around the room. Just so he had it to like show whoever he needed to. I'm sure he could make final call on hiring Paxton for that movie. But uh, I always said that was such a cool story about him. And maybe that's why that's pretty cool that you mentioned that. I didn't know that he knew so much about everybody's job. That's going to make you feel like, hey, I'm going to go to bat for this guy. Well, that's the reputation that he has. Yeah, he can take he can literally take apart a movie camera. And put it back together. He knows everything about it. So, so any DP that works for him, I imagine, is pissing in their pants because they can't, they can't pull their normal tricks. Like every artist has their bag of tricks, right? That any director will say, "Oh yeah, that's cool." There's always your go-to stuff, right? Yeah. And but Cameron already knows all that stuff, so you got to bring your A game. Not only that, you got you got to go beyond that because he already knows. And that's what's so cool about somebody that's really super intelligent behind the camera, writing the story, telling everybody what they should do, because he knows. He knows literally costume design, makeup effects, camera, lighting, <laughs> visual effects. You know, this guy's genius. Um, so anyways, it was, it, was a, it was so cool to be able to work for somebody like that uh, for the brief time that I did. Man, that was amazing. The, the fact that Eddie was able to coordinate with for Blizzard all those different Yeah, I never I don't play the video game, but all those different creatures and characters from the game all at the same time, making it look like they're in a huge giant toy box. Man, how cool is that? And just the fact that he was able to work with Rick Baker and he went and he followed his dream. He knocked in there. First person said, ah, don't do this. Go to college. And then he tried one more time and it changed forever. And those are like legends in special effects that he was able to mow their lawn and pick their brain that eventually led to his career that is still going strong. Again, anything we talked about will be in the episode notes. Thank you again, Eddie. Now your homework. It's our first sequel of 2022. Wow. And it's Batman Forever. So it's free on HBO Max. Watch it. Digest it. Get ready for us to talk about it. We even have a special guest coming back. Uh, Shara, she was our guest on Bride of Reanimator. So this time we're going to get a little batty. And maybe I'll even be in a Batman suit. I don't know. Maybe. That's if you want to watch the video review. Or you want to save from having a look at me and Jamie. Just keep listening. And don't forget to review rate share our podcast follow us on all social media at sequels only and don't forget to check out our website sequels good night